if our positivity prevents us from being honest, I think we have moved into a kind of spiritual territory that's very dangerous. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. But here on The Profile, we like to speak to a different Christian each and every week and find out some of their life story. And I'm delighted to say my guest this week is Kate Bowler. She is a New York Times best-selling author, podcast host, and professor at Duke University. She's also the author of the new book, no Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear, which is available now. She's also the author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, which tells the story of her diagnosis with colon cancer at the age of 35 and her subsequent struggle to understand the personal and intellectual dimensions of the American belief that all tragedies are tests of character. Both books are superb, delighted to recommend them, and it's fantastic to have Kate on the show to hear more of some of her work and some of her life. Kate, welcome along. Hello. Thanks for that intro. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you as well. So let's start with the first book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's a great title. In fact, it reminds me of another book I came across once, and the title was something like, I married you, not your family, <laughs> and and nine, and nine other relationship myths um, that uh, will ruin your marriage. It was something like that. It's one oh, of those great funny. titles where you read it, you think, oh, okay. And then you see the subtitle and think, oh, I need to think again. Wait a so, minute. Yeah, I've been tell, undermined. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about it. Yeah. Everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. I always feel like I have to add it or else I've committed uh, heresy is... Um, it's about the crisis of faith. It's about what happens when you're the one whose life blows up and falls apart. And so I wrote it really in the very immediate aftermath of my, of my cancer diagnosis, where I was trying to figure out, yeah, how to live with the why, the why bad things happen. How can God still feel good when, um, when my life is so spectacularly (laughs) incomplete and, um, and also just that strange feeling of um, being, a, the prob- being a problem that everyone has to explain when they meet you, where they're like searching for some kind of reason uh, why it's you and not them. And so, sort of, yeah, that was kind of a theological, historical explanation slash, yeah, interrogation sure. of a, a season of crisis. Yeah. And I suppose the kind of Christian spin on everything happens for a reason it happens in a couple of different ways doesn't it one is to do with the prosperity gospel and the other is more to do with God determining and ordaining things do you want to just unpack that for us a little bit yeah sure there is there's exactly there's two versions of the everything happens for a reason mindset and the, the the first one is the one that I'm an expert in which is that I study the history of the prosperity gospel, the idea that if you have a certain kind of faith, one that you speak out loud positively, that you can have health and wealth and happiness and endless abundance. And um, in that version, everything happens for a reason because you are good and you have said the right things. You've thrown words out into the world like boomerangs and then good things will come back to you. Um, Conversely, if bad things are happening to you, then you have obviously put bad things, bad vibes, bad intentions or actions out into the world and are therefore being punished. So in that very synthetic causal world, um, nothing happens by accident. 
And that can be tremendously empowering and also uh, really terrifying for people who like me tend to be on the losing side (laughs) of things. Um, And then the other version of everything happens for a reason is an argument about God's sovereignty, which is that God is in control. God created and ordered the universe. And therefore, if, um, therefore there must be an order and a reason for all things. And then usually the half step beyond that is, and I may know the order of of such (laughs) things, and I will tell this to you now. So I remember, um, I had written this very, very sad op-ed for the New York times when I was like, I was, so I'm like openly dying. I was just trying to say, I thought quite reasonably (laughs) that I could live without, um, I could really, I was hoping for a few, um, fewer explanations about why I was suffering. And then the absolute flood of mail I got included a lot of uh, things like this one time, this guy in a church service just wrote something really mean on a bulletin and then just mailed me the bulletin. And it just, it just said, surely God is just to let you, you die. And I was like, Hey, thanks, Gary, Gary from Indiana. So I, uh, but I did write to the pastor because he sent me the bulletin. <laughs> so I was like, oh. so I was like, dear pastor, so-and-so your parishioner is not paying attention to your sermon. He's been busy writing garbage notes to people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it reminds, reminds me of something I observed quite recently, a conversation between two Christians and, and one Christian said, my husband no longer believes. And this mm. has been the case for three or four decades now. And another Christian just immediately said, oh, he'll come back. We're praying for him. He'll come back. And it was just, and it was very interesting because I think sometimes in church, we, we actually hold that up as a, what a wonderful example of faith that this person really believes. But actually you think for the, for the woman who shared that and made herself vulnerable and said, my husband doesn't believe and I'm struggling with it. Yeah. Probably wasn't helpful actually. Even if we as Christians, we want to say, oh yeah, have faith. Actually that, that example of faith was, was quite, um, although well-intentioned could have been quite hurtful, couldn't it? Yeah, we do rush to um, either assume that the world is ordered and good, and and it will and the, and it will come back to us, and it will always be okay. And uh, and we make those evaluations spiritually, I think, all the time in the face of pain that makes us uncomfortable, because the what if the 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 <laughs> what if he doesn't believe? What if this person? doesn't come back? What if this child passes? What if this parent gets dementia? I mean, all of these versions, something gets undone. And then in the face of that, we tend to get nervous. And sometimes I feel like we're sort of acting like God's hype man, just like right beside being like, (laughs) just, yeah. Reminds me of like, um, (laughs) reminds me of like entourages in like, where people just are like, you can do it. Everything's fine. Like DMX had this whistle guy who's always like, tweet, 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 tweet. I feel like God does not need us to be like DMX's whistle guy. Sometimes in the unexplainable, that's where like, that's, 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 that's the room for faith to breathe and grow and also be questioned. Yeah. And, and is, is there actually a liberty and a, and a freedom that you've enjoyed and experienced in not having to rationalize or explain everything? Yeah, certainly. I feel less scared of other people's pain. So there's always that moment, right? Where you see it in their eyes and somebody's carrying something and then they want to tell you. And I think before I might've felt sort of nervous, like I need to like all that anticipatory energy, like you want to rush in and fix it. But 
now, now, now that I know so much of pain is just unsolvable. And especially for Christians, it's our job to display the kind of courage that we need to say, like, this is life as it is. And, um, so yeah, I, in, I feel so much more comfort just being able to, to hear it and then to sit with it for a second. This is just, this is just skills that like chaplains and older people, like people who've aged into it, everyone else seemed to already have this skill. Just, <laughs> I am new to the not trying to solve other people's pain. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your story and some of your kind of faith journey. Did you grow up in a Christian environment? What kind of uh, background did you come from in terms of church? I, uh, I grew up among the, um, the Mennonites, the humble cheese eaters of the prairies. They are, uh, they are pacifists. Uh, they're communalists. They make more furniture than they should. Um, we can buy furniture now there's an Ikea and, uh, (laughs) and yet, um, it was, uh, it was a very, um, it was kind of a wonderful way to come into faith for me because it was, uh, a place where people had one really low expectations for life being bright and shiny. They are wonderful at suffering. They do it together. Sometimes they do it to each other with what they do to jello and then put it out on the buffet table. You have to say things like, is that deli meat? Like, why did you put deli meat in that dessert? Um, but it was, uh, it was, um, um, a very, uh, humble and loving faith. I also had uh, two parents who became Christians a bit later in life. So I grew up without a lot of the Christian subculture. So I only in high school knew what some of the Christian American bands were like newsboys, switchfoot. And I think not having the subculture let me sort of play with the ideas. And I I saw my parents do that. My dad became a Christian reading, I don't know, something unbelievably highbrow, like city of God. <laughs> and, uh, you know, oh, what a, what a spectacular worldview. And, um, I think that gave me a lot of room to have questions really early on. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, since then you've, you've gone into academia and you've done some really, you know, heavyweight, thick books for fellow <laughs> academics. And you've also done the books we're talking about today for, uh, for less intelligent people like myself. Um, <laughs> And you've, you've sort of straddled those two word, worlds a little bit, haven't you? Has that been, has that been a deliberate thing or just some, just the way it's panned out? Well, I, the academic work um, is also a condition of me having a job and I have a job and I want to keep it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so I, I, I spent a decade researching that first book on the prosperity gospel that just ate up all of my twenties was interviewing televangelists and going to see churches with rivers running down the middle of it and enormous golden spinning globes. And, um, and that, so to, to write that book, it was like the first history of the prosperity gospel that needed the kind of big, heavy, dense, 2 million footnotes later kind of apparatus. It was also, um, what I needed to learn how to be a historian. So I wrote that, um, wonderfully specific book called blessed. And, uh, and then, uh, and then right after that, I got sick and then it looked like I wasn't going to live long enough to do much of anything. And that's when I wrote the, um, everything happens for a reason memoir, but I wrote that honestly, only in a month or two, it just kind of poured out. Um, cause I was really scared and I was 
I mean, quite realistically, probably not going to live through the year. So I, I was like, gosh, I should probably that, that I, um, I just needed a different kind of truth telling. I wanted to be more honest than I was able to be out loud because out loud, I was aggressively positive. <laughs> so I, I needed a minute to, um, to learn how to say something harder, which is that, uh, I, is that I don't know what will happen to me and I don't know how to say that that's still okay. That's interesting that I hadn't realized that you were out loud, relentlessly positive. Um, oh, I was a, I am sort of a nightmare when it, when it comes to everything's going to be, I, that to honestly, that feels like such a privilege of like what we're doing right now. And the, the chance to have community around ideas is uh, if left to my own devices, I would look like I was starring in a reality show about a woman who gets cancer and is really, really excited, really excited about it. I was reading that the, when you first got that diagnosis, so you were 35 and you had a 14% chance of surviving the next two years. Yeah. We're now five years on from that. So tell me what those five years have been like for you. Yeah. Well, that was, it was, it, that, it was the end of a world that I really loved. The one before was, um, was really my dream. I, all I wanted to do was be a historian and have gargoyles and wine and cheese functions and like rich mahogany bookcases. <laughs> I really did. That's all I wanted. And, um, and finally had this smushy little baby and after a lot of infertility. And so I just, uh, I really had this life that I, that was uh, certain and it was mapped out and it was kind of lovely. And, um, and, and so I've, the last few years have been trying to figure out how to live beautifully somehow without the kind of certainty and the roadmap that I had had before. So cancer um, has been a very, very rough road for me. It wasn't in any way neat. I had two years of very, very difficult treatment and surgeries. And then since then, it's been ongoing procedures and scans. And I'm just not on the sort of medical superhighway. I'm on kind of the bumpy side service road where nothing is there's where just nothing is easy. So I tend, so part of it has been learning to live with longer intervals. Cause at first, when I thought I was going to die right away, I really only got two months to live at a time. So I had to get really good at living inside 60 days. Right. And then I got 90 days. And then now I'm at six months. I get these stretches of confidence and, uh, right. So that has been much of the substance of, I guess, my intellectual and spiritual curiosity about like, how do you live with life as a chronic condition? How do, how do you do this? If you, if you can't resort to the sort of aggressive futurism of before where like everything's all mapped out and it's, then how do we sort of take stu- two steps back from the edge of the cliff and then learn to build a house there? I resonate with that. Cause I think if you were listen to what goes on in my head which I wouldn't recommend um (laughs) I tend to think quite a lot about future and plans or could be as simple as what my next meal is or as further away as family or the next holiday or whatever yeah and to to then be limited I suppose to like you say you've got possibly days or you know or a couple of months that must be a massive adjustment because presumably this for you kind of had to would have happened almost immediately one day yeah. You're going along thinking, got my whole life ahead of me. And the next day you're given a diagnosis that could completely change everything. 
I didn't realize how much we just casually talk about the future. And I'm sure a lot of people have been feeling that going through a pandemic when the ability to make plans dissolves in your hands. And then, and then there's sort of no such thing as small talk anymore. You're just not able to be breezy. And I, I always kind of notice that in myself when I'm in a bit of a, it, when I, when I'm in a good season, I can tell, cause I get to, I get to not notice how lucky I am. And, uh, and so learning how to be, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that was kind of the challenge though, honestly, is, um, in having to surrender a long future, a lot of people told me with very well-meaning advice that like the solution then was to be present, live in the moment. And, um, and that sort of is also part of our, like the same spiritual family as the prosperity gospel. Cause it assumes that there's, there's a kind of mental mastery you need to achieve. If you bind yourself into, um, into making every minute into a moment, then it solves the problem of pain. It solves the problem of not enoughness because you're, you're locked into now. And I, uh, that is just, uh, it's, um, it's so delusional. It's so delusional. And, uh, it's so tempting and so delusional. And so I, I've had to try to like have a better account of the, of the past and the present and the future. So like the, the present is beautiful and there's all kinds of gorgeous moments, like little miracles that pop up in the day. And then there's also email and, and, and terrible paperwork to avoid medical bankruptcy or, you know, <laughs> things like that. And then we still have to live in the future because we're Christians. And so we are people of hope. We just can't get that confused between certainty and that our lives are going to work out, but we still need to dream. And then, you know, and then we have the past and we need to not be like all American celebrity interviews after a scandal where they end with the phrase, um, no regrets (laughs) because it made me who I am today. Yeah. I mean, we need to be able to like experience and appreciate the past, the past are both good and bad as being the as being the reality that they are. So it, yeah, it has sort of shifted my ability to know. I have to kind of accept the full spectrum of, of time instead of just trying to like pretend that I'm going to use all my moments yeah. to fix it. It, it. it sounds like, um, it sounds like the cliches don't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, whether it's everything happens for a reason or just live in the moment. Yeah. Or YOLO or, um, master your morning, Sam, I've been meaning to talk to you about your mornings. <laughs> Is there a routine you might begin to change to achieve the kind of flow? Well, there's almost a sort of entire publishing industry around little paperback books that are quite often sold in airports. Yeah. And it's like, if you just change these two or three or four things in your life, then everything will just become kind of organized and you'll feel on top of everything. Yeah. There's even entire courses you can do about how to organize your work and then just be Mr. Productive or Mrs. Productive. Um, are you saying those things, are you saying those things just don't work or that they, they might work, but they're not going to fulfill you? Well, I think they just don't solve the, the problem that they, they promise to solve, which is they promise to, um, at first, you know, there's the sort of tips and tricks and strategies. And, um, but the problem is with these, with instrumentalism, which is right. Always trying to use things to get somewhere else. The somewhere else isn't, isn't real. The somewhere else is trying to get to that feeling of infinity, that feeling of unlimited life and total self-mastery. And 
I mean, if we get a minute like that, like just take a minute to then enjoy it. Like when we have wind in our sails, those are small and beautiful seasons. The rest of the time we're taking care of people who need us. We're struggling through a, the limitations of a relationship or our terrible, terrible bodies that often try to murder us or, you know, or we're caring for aging parents or we're like, most of our seasons are going to be of dependence. And if we don't have any language to account for that, we're going to feel really confused about why we feel like failures all the time. So I say we're, we're uh, five years on from the initial diagnosis. Have people described that to you as a, as a miracle? And would you use that word? Yeah, I think um, miracle. Yeah. I, cause I, um, there's like a long, I have a long history with the word miracle because I studied um, miracle healers for such a long time. I spent, I think I, I would go toe to toe with any Pentecostal and say that <laughs> I have been to more faith healing rallies and more church services and more miracle attempts than anyone I know. And I will, <laughs> I will fight them on that. Um, so I have seen, I've seen the power of miracles and I've also seen, um, the devastation wrought by the, um, by our framework around it. The assumption is right. That for me, it's, it's, the, it's that God can act and that God can intervene and something that there can be a way made where there wasn't a way before. I believe in that. And I certainly pray for one. Um, and, but in saying that, um, I lived and that is a miracle. Sometimes we're just saying it was very unlikely for that to happen and that it happened. Thank God, which is a perfectly lovely thing to say. But I think the problem with being a patient or the problem with having any kind of really complicated, intractable problem is that all kinds of things save us. And they, there's not neat causality behind all of them. Like for instance, I had a really positive response to an immunotherapy drug that really diminished the size of my tumors. That was the fact that I responded to that drug. I was so grateful and that sometimes felt like a miracle. And I also got a lot of chemotherapy and that I really didn't need because I was part of a medical experiment. And that was, um, so medicine was not inherently a miracle because it, um, both helped me and hurt me unnecessarily. A lot of people prayed for me. I think that I have felt that. And I think my life was radically better because of that community faith that felt like a miracle. Um, but also there's times where I saved my own life. I made like game time decisions about like, Nope, you can't do that surgery. Nope. You do this. And I, and the result was, uh, I lived. And so like, we have so many kinds of agency that we're thinking about when we talk about miracles. And I love it when people are like a little gentler about the term, um, because we don't always know why something wonderful happened, except that we, there's all, all, all kinds of reasons embedded in it. Yeah. That's, that's very true. Isn't it? I suppose in, um, as you say, you, you've been in more Pentecostal rallies than, uh, than most people, Presumably you would have encountered people there who who actually would say, no, the only the only thing that that resulted in this miracle was literally a prayer. I didn't take any drugs, didn't go to a doctor. I had whether it was a bad back or cancer or whatever it was. Yeah. 
and someone prayed for me and the result is God healed me. Did you have the opportunity to kind of almost interrogate those accounts, uh, you know, as an academic and sort of say, from an academic point of view, can we, do we have evidence here to believe that something supernatural really did happen in this person's yeah. life? There's a couple really good histories of, of that question. I'm just thinking of the work right now of Candy Gunther Brown. I think it's called testing prayer. And it's exactly on that question. Um, I, cause the, it's both, um, and I've interviewed a lot of people who have had a miraculous healing and will testify to it, will describe a kind of single causality moment. So a moment of um, illness and then a prayer and then a solution. And in fact, I think my friend, Sarah Bessie is a wonderful example in her new book, um, miracles and other reasonable things. She describes, um, being prayed for and she was, um, she was being part of a Pentecostal, um, and, Sarah, if you hear this and I'm misrepresenting your story, forgive me, but she was part of this Pentecostal consortium that went to Rome to celebrate the Pentecostal Catholic dialogue. And she was prayed for by a, f- a couple of priests. And she experienced in that moment, a tremendous and miraculous sensation of, of, uh, of being healed from much of the effects of a really devastating car accident that she could both feel and then immediately experience. And then when she got back, um, got scans done and it stuck. And she was almost embarrassed. Like, you know, we academic <laughs> types are sometimes like, ah, <laughs> I just, uh, well, it worked. So that's, uh, thank you. God, I feel a little sheepish about it. And, um, but she was also not healed of other things that have been debilitating. And so that kind of keeping the both andness of that in which we can, um, we can be saved by one thing and not another. Do you feel inner conflict? between truth and lies, the way of Christianity and the way of the world? If so, it's time to live no lies. With huge spiritual insight, New York Times bestseller John Mark Comer guides us into recognizing and resisting the lies that rob us of peace and freedom. Live no lies, yours free when you take out an annual subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. I had a really nice conversation recently with, um, Jerry Sitzer who wrote like a really, have you read this book, Sam? It's called a, like a grace disguised. It's really beautiful. Uh, he had, um, he had lost his mom and his wife and his daughter in a single car accident. And he talks about the devastation of that loss and trying to live with the life he didn't choose. And we were talking the other day and he said, um, Oh, but Kate, like the, so I was like, well, I, I think that if I could solve my problem and I could have a miracle and that'd be so, <laughs> that'd be so great. And I would really like that. <laughs> and he was like, oh, Kate, but the, the dirty little secret about miracles is they don't last. Like we still, you know, Lazarus still had to die again. And I, um, I was like, oh, Jerry, you're horrible. And I don't, <laughs> I don't love you anymore. Um, <laughs> but it was a nice reminder that like, even a miracle doesn't ultimately solve the problem of us being finite. And so like, if we're looking as Christians, if we're looking for a fix, I think we're not going to find one. If we're looking for, for God's love and, and, and every now and then intervention, I think, I think we could, we could be pleased. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating how you've been able to give so much time to studying something like the, the prosperity gospel. I have, I have Christian friends who get quite angry. They would say righteously angry about some of this teaching, which 
as you appreciate, is, is on a spectrum, isn't it, of, of, of lesser to more extreme. But in the, in the more extreme cases of prosperity yeah. theology that, that basically says, well, you know, if you, if you do your bit and if you love God, then he promises all of these blessings. Yeah. I, I know Christians who get really quite angry about this, even going as far to say that this is, this is false teaching, this is a false gospel. And, of course, for people like yourself who, who get sick and there isn't a kind of slot machine God where you just pray a prayer and everything gets fixed. Have yeah. you felt that kind of anger of, of, of why is it that, that Christian preachers can get away with preaching the stuff that just, you know, doesn't yeah. work frankly, and can, can even heap guilt on people of, well, I've, yeah. I've not prayed enough. Therefore it must be my fault that I'm not getting well. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, um, I do get angry sometimes usually when, an attempted miracle goes on so long that it becomes a, 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 a cruelty. Um, it delays people's ability to mourn and to grieve what they're losing. And then it, and then it makes them, um, and then it sort of declares them failures when they die and to, to feel scorn about our own creatureliness as if God didn't make us this way, you know, that, that it's like a huge surprise to God that we die. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, what <laughs> why is this design flaw <laughs> been pointed out to me earlier? I uh I I mean moments on which I get angry are um I've seen prosperity gospel funerals go terribly wrong. Um I think attempted resurrections are absolutely unkind to the, the to families. I think it's it's just, it's, um, it doesn't let us be what we are, which is just made of very soft material. And, um, I've seen people who are almost like really at the end of their life being paraded around prosperity churches and there's, they have to then declare that they're healed. And this is, I mean, this is why I think we need courage, like courage to, to name the world as it is. I mean, if we can't, if, if our positivity prevents us from being honest, I think we have moved into a kind of spiritual territory that's very dangerous. Someone um, asked me the other day, given, given that we know that Christians and non-Christians alike get ill, get COVID, experience yeah. tragedy, lose loved ones, g- given we know that Christians and non-Christians alike are not automatically protected from the way the world is. Is it ever appropriate to pray prayers of protection? Is it ever appropriate to say, God, protect yeah. me from COVID? And I thought it was a really good question because you could argue it's quite biblical. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. <laughs> yeah. you know, Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. So in, in a sense, I can pray, God, don't let my family get COVID. Absolutely. But, but then yeah. also at the same time, you've got to live in the reality of, just because I prayed that and just because I'm a Christian, that doesn't give me any automatic guarantees. Is there a tension there of, of praying for protection, but also kind of not assuming on it, I suppose? Mm-hmm. I do think God wants us to, um, to, to say the desires of our hearts and our loves are so specific. It's always, it's not like, yes, we love humankind in general, but we love like Bob and Linda, you know, like we love certain <laughs> people. And I, uh, and that's why I think we shouldn't, we really shouldn't be embarrassed about our neediness and about how much we need help and how desperate we are and how much we do want healing, protection, love. And, and, and we can want, um, you know, we can want, um, 
a new friend because the, the people have disappointed us a, a different relationship. Cause ours broke. Like none of these, I, I think that's one of the, the lessons I've learned from Pentecostals is like, they, they look through their biographies to find examples of God's action. And that's everyone else finds that sort of wildly presumptuous. And I think it's kind of beautiful is it is okay for us to, um, to want God to intervene in our day-to-day life and including prayers of protection, or I would really like to be healed. That'd be so nice, please. Um, and also we need to accept the world that is not yet. And, uh, we need to know that we are inevitably, we are invariably being drawn toward God's future, but that it is not entirely now. And sometimes the evidence of God in this world is barely perceptible. <laughs> so like, <laughs> if we're not willing to say that, I think we're, we're getting confused. What have been some of the reactions to the new book that have most encouraged you so far? The new book is out now. It's no cure for being human. What have people been saying about it? I, uh, I think honestly, this is my favorite book. It's my favorite thing I've ever gotten to write because it's, uh, it's just, it's just about how we live with lives we don't choose and um, how do we avoid some of the worst of the cliches <laughs> since Sam, he and I have decided that we are not into cliches. <laughs> so I, well, there's an entire appendix at the back that I quite enjoyed. Where... Oh, I, it makes me so happy to be like, yes, but do I have an appendix? <laughs> and then I do. And then I try to like, um, you know, like, when people say, um, make every minute count. So I, it was like things people say, make every minute count. And then I have a different column where I offer something else people could say, like a more complicated truth. So I wrote, life is unpredictable. You're a person, not a certified accountant. <laughs> and I really, I really like all of that because I, um, I think what feels what feels like a gift is that this is not about, it's not about cancer and it's not about you know, it's not about me struggling with being worried that I'm going to die. It's about the fact that all of us are so much more delicate than we realize. And can we live without these stories of invincibility? Can we just live with the fragility that we have and that, and the things that persist and that, Mm. so the responses from people have all been on that note, which is like, Oh my gosh, my life keeps falling apart. And I'm like, yes, it (laughs) has. I'm so sorry that's that's that gives me like such a a great sense of community well I think that's what's wonderful about the book is it is it is so relatable so even if you wouldn't say my life is falling apart I think all of us if we're being honest would say life did not is not turning out exactly as I (laughs) I expected it yeah and I think on that level everyone to a greater or lesser degree can can relate to it I um, enjoyed the appendix at the back where you say, uh, let go and let God, because that's I've heard that one before and I've never understood it. But your interpretation of that, uh, a more complicated truth was God loves you, but won't do your taxes, (laughs) Um, which I thought was was brilliant. And um, the the other one that I did want to ask you about was everyone is doing their best. I've heard this one quite a lot more recently, especially online of. Kind of, you yes. know, be be nice to everyone. Everyone's everyone's doing their best, which can be quite helpful in the sense of, yeah. um, if if someone yeah. is quite, you know, rude to you, just give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're having a bad day. They're doing their best. But your answer to that was the jury is still out. Is everyone really doing their best? That sounds like that might have come from, if I can put it this way, it might have come from a place of pain and experience. So where where did that one come from? 
I, uh, and I, I agree. I think it is, I think it is a loving practice to assume people are doing their best if it helps have a loving response. I think what drives me crazy about everyone is doing their best is, um, I think it's just really hard to be a person in pain in the world because there are very few opportunities for honesty. So I have found in the moments where I'm saying, whether I, I just have a little window and keep in mind, this is somebody who's like, I'm trying to get out of my aggressive positivity. I'm just trying to find a second to be honest. And then when I do, I have found that it goes very badly and that the most common response is, well, everybody's doing their best. And I was like, are they, Samantha? What? They really all doing? There's just like, there's been a study and every single person has been tested at 100% best capacity. Maybe what if what if one person wasn't doing their best when they misfiled by insurance claim? Yeah, I think what's the problem with everything is everyone's doing their best is it doesn't allow us sometimes that exhaust valve we need when something is unjust, when something is really painful. I, I've even found there's a there's always a really awkward moment where you get um uh there's like an intake process when you go to the hospital or to the doctors and they um at least in American um, hospitals that I've been to that at the beginning, they give you kind of like a thermometer and you have to rate your pain on this thermometer of zero to 10. And so they go on a scale from, so I, 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 I gosh, I, I get processed into these things so much that it, I, all my responses are automatic, like Kate Bowler. And then I give my birthday and then I give my medical, you know, and then they always go on a scale from one to 10, how would you rate your pain? And I found that if you say your actual number, I always get up. Uh, not always, I have very frequently gotten like a little correction from a nurse or someone who says, um, um, well, at least you're here now. <laughs> so that's a very surprising thing to say to someone with stage four cancer who was admitted very late because I wasn't believed. So what if I was a six on 10 and that meant that you would have to take my pain seriously. So I, I've, I, I think in our, in, at least in, um, American culture, there's very few opportunities to really directly say this, this is, this is the world I live in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what do you think would help? I'm particularly thinking about Churchill. How do you think we can start to have more honest and open conversations where people don't just rush to kind of theological answers or cliches, but where we can, I mean, you mentioned before quite often those who are older uh, mm -hmm. pastors who've been around the block a few times are yeah. very good at just sitting and listening to people but how can I guess all of us as the church grow in this area of allowing mm -hmm. people who are in pain and going through some incredibly tough stuff to be able to articulate that without a kind of neat yeah. theological answer which isn't necessarily going to help them yeah I think maybe I've, I started at first uncharitably, but then eventually charitably categorizing unhelpful responses. And I think so, you know, maybe the first step is in noticing if some of the things we want to say fall into any of those categories. One of them is just teaching when you hear somebody's pain or terrible problem that you want to instruct them on something. And that could be anything from, um, you know, well, just if you've gotten away from your devotional time. I really recommend that you get back to, or, um, or this verse says that, and, uh, or I, it's a lot of, I've recently seen a documentary. <laughs> so, um, but trying to pour teaching into that moment. Um, another common response is, is, is minimizing. And that can happen just pragmatically. Like what the nurse said, at least you're here now, 
or there's tons of spiritual minimizing we do. Um, um, but heaven is going to be great is a complete minimizing of the reality of the present. Um, that, uh, there's a lot of, um, every, I mean, a lot of everything happens for a reason. A lot of God is trying to teach you something. And that's, I mean, that goes into the third category, which is trying to give people solutions is that if we imagine that if we could give them, well, God will give you this perspective and that will therefore make this pain useful. It really, um, it, it means it forces the suffering person to have to say that they were glad or grateful. And I want to take all the, I would love to take glad or grateful, or I would never go back out of anyone's spiritual repertoire. I think instead we have to be willing to find that very uncomfortable place of um, wanting to be incredibly loving, praying for um, the restoration of their lives privately. Also, if they just haven't asked you to make that kind of intervention, um, but then to, to tolerate the discomfort of knowing that a lot, a lot of people's pain just continues. So I think, I think other people's pain makes us spiritually uncomfortable. So more just like in the of noticing that about ourselves and knowing that God can still be good. Even if in this particular case, I guess what I'm saying is we can't use people as spiritual case studies. Yeah. I, um, I ask this question of most people and do feel free to undermine the premise of it, but I, <laughs> I always get some interesting replies. How would you describe your calling? Calling. Um, it's changed, but as, but the, the central piece of it has been, um, the work that I do that I know is inherently good as in I'm made in the making of it. That to me always feels like that is, a a call from outside of ourselves that God will use for his own purposes. So for me, that's like, it's been ideas and the, I'm, I'm amazingly good at sitting very still for a long time in the archives. <laughs> so I have been, I have been, um, give, given the gift of, a of, of, of being stationary. Um, but that, uh, long form ideas feels like that I've been, that, that is the one in which I feel myself most alive and mm. most, um, grateful for the, what I've been prepared for. And can you tell us which one or which ones you're working on right now? Oh, like uh, of ideas right now? Um, well, I've got a, I've been working on a devotional for a bit about faith. Wow. And it's just like faith without perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And it's just called uh, Good Enough, which I always so funny. <laughs> what, how, how, how could we reach for a faith that's like good enough? <laughs> that sounds. Uh... Sounds like there's definitely a gap in the market for a slightly more honest Christian devotion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't love doing, so you don't love spending time with God. I should title everything that. So you're busy and it feels really stressful to try to find more time. It's interesting. I've spent a little bit of time in America. And one of the things that I do actually love about American culture is, is the optimism and the, the can-do attitude. And I think that's probably just because I'm a cynical Brit and it's quite, <laughs> it's quite refreshing yeah. Um, but it does strike me that living in an overly optimistic culture could perhaps be quite draining as well. Is yeah. there a is there a pressure that comes with that kind of environment that you've experienced just just to be happy, even when you're you're really not that? Yeah, I mean it's it's part of the multiple strains 
ideologically that have gone into at least for sure the last hundred years of American culture, which is um, these nascent beliefs in the power of the mind. They are, we call it um, in the history of metaphysics, we call it mental magic. The idea that our minds are spiritually the most important things about us. Then of course, there's the American dream that makes um, this a country of individualists and bootstrappers and um, and then the, the way that they've become of an overwhelmingly therapeutic culture has sort of increased focus on the idea that we are our own thoughts and that what we all need to do is just sort of discipline our thoughts in a certain way. Um, all those things have really made this a culture that is irrepressibly, <laughs> irrepressibly optimistic. Um, and, uh, and the problem though, is that when it falls on the, everything is possible all the time, it really doesn't make room for, um, it's, I think it's so worried about tipping into despair that it sort of keeps everything on the, like one note, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it's just like, doesn't let any more notes in that scale. So I, I think most of my, uh, most of my intellectual uh, work tends to be just trying to convince other people to have any other notes. What if we tried some of the ones down here, some <laughs> of the sadder notes, <laughs> I always like to ask people as well if there are any particular spiritual disciplines, habits, practices that are giving them life. And it's fascinating the range of answers. But what are the sorts of things that help you connect with God um, that you would you would recommend or have been particularly helpful for you recently? I I I think maybe because I had that the my first book was called Blessed, and then I was really obsessed with learning about this hashtag blessed culture. One of the things that I've tried to learn how to do is to actually bless people instead of just sort of live in a hashtag. Hashtag blessed assumes that we're lucky. We're in the right place at the right time. Thank God. Thank, thank God for me and my actions. And, uh, and so what would, how could we just bless all the other places in between? So I write these blessings that I put up every week on social media and just try to, I just try to think about, um, like a blessing for when you have to put one foot in front of the other or uh, a blessing for, you know, the finding the right place for fear. And I think that has helped me reimagine the ordinary and sometimes unpleasant things as also a place where God lives. Absolutely. Well, okay. It's been an absolute pleasure talking. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I've really enjoyed it. Oh my goodness. What a joy. Thank you. I'm Sam Howes. You have been listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio, also available as a podcast. So if you missed any part of that conversation or you wanted to catch up on past episodes, we've got over 200 different interviews with leading Christians from all walks of life available now on The Profile podcast. We've got interviews with Joyce Mayer, with Martin Smith, with John Mark Comer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. A recent episode with Sheila Ray Gregoire that I really highly recommend checking out and loads more where that came from on the Profile Podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcast from or you can go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. And just before we go, I want to let you know about a fantastic offer available for you right now. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine. And each and every month we publish features, news, reviews, analysis, commentary on everything that God is doing in the UK church and beyond. And you can get yourself digital access, the print mag through your door, and even a free copy of John Mark Comer's best-selling brand new book, 
thrown in as well. It's a fantastic subscription package for you. You can take it out right now at premierchristianity.com. That's the print magazine, online access, and a free book by John Mark Comer. Check out the offer now at premierchristianity.com. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been great to have your company. If you are listening to this on the podcast, we would so appreciate a rating and a review if you did enjoy this interview. Personally, I thought it was a really honest conversation about some of the difficulties that we Christians can face in life. So I benefited hugely from it. But if you enjoyed it as well and you appreciated what Kate had to say, give us a rating and a review because it'll help other people discover the show, which we believe will be a blessing to many. So if you can do that for us, we would so appreciate it. But whatever you're doing with the rest of your day, have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you next time.